0: That's the last picture of Shea Alive, and when I put my hand around him before the picture was taken, I told him, Commandante, look at the little bird. To see a man who was so powerful at one point in time in Cuba, and to see the way he was at that point in time. He looked like a beggar, he was in rags, he was filthy, and it was a completely different image of what people perceive of him in the world. In 1967, there was an interest uh, to provide the Bolivian government with the capability against the guerrillas that arrive in the area. My mission was specifically to provide intelligence about Che Guevara and advise them on how to proceed to be able to either capture or kill him. Che Guevara was in Bolivia to be able uh, to take over the country and if he was ever to be successful that way he would be able to export the revolution to fight different neighboring countries that they have boundaries with. The instruction that we specifically got from the CIA was if Che Guevara was able to capture alive to be able to keep him alive at all costs. We received information from the field that Che Guevara had been captured.
1: Reaction came fast following Castro's death, mainly in the Little Havana section of Miami where hundreds of Cubans settled when Castro came to power. For them, Castro's death is cause for celebration.
2: Good morning, the crowds have thinned out significantly, but the expectation is, as the sun rises, the crowd will return. Look, the death of Fidel Castro had been a rumor that had become a running joke for many years. But when people realized last night that, no, this is real, he's dead, they came to the one place that is known as Little Havana. That's Café Versailles. So this is where folks will come, get a shot of their Cuban espresso and talk about the news. But the news couldn't wait until the morning so around midnight, shortly before, 30 minutes after news broke out of Cuba that Fidel Castro was dead, people flooded the street. This is the main road running through Little Havana. And we have the video from last night. Not only could you see it, but if you were anywhere in the area, you could hear it. People banging pots and pans with spoons. We're celebrating um, the end of a man who separated so many families throughout the years, a man who killed many, who imprisoned many individuals just for thinking differently. The mayor of Miami, Carlos Regalado, was walking the street here about an hour ago, and I spoke to him. His father was a journalist in Cuba who was jailed for 22 years, and so for him, this is not only political to be here to talk to his supporters, but it's personal.
3: the Global Recon Podcast. I'm your host, John Hendricks. Uh, I have a distinguished guest joining me for this week's podcast. Uh, his name is Rick Prado. Uh, he retired as a senior intel service to SIS2, two, uh, which is the major general equivalent at the CIA. Uh, and he is the author of a book that was recently published called Black Ops, The Life of a CIA Shadow Warrior. Uh, Rick, it's an honor to have you on.
4: Thank you for having me, sir.
3: Appreciate it. Thank you. Uh, so your your book is fascinating. Um, your story is unique. Um, and you you begin by talking about your life as a young kid in Cuba um, before Fidel Castro took over. Uh, so you share some interesting stories from that period of your life. Uh, and then in, one in particular that stood out was... Um, the time that you experienced uh, a gunfight up close. Uh, so can you explain uh, what was happening at that time and then maybe talk about how your life changed uh, after Castro took over?
4: Uh, absolutely. You know, um, I believe that uh, we, we have a path that's given to us at birth. And when I look back at my life right now, um, I was being forged in this direction. I was seven years old, uh, when, when the, uh, the revolution was going on in Cuba. And my town was near the mountains where Che Guevara had his stronghold. And they raided my town a couple of times. But one of those times, my parents were gone. I was with a nanny. And um, I could hear shots outside. And being seven or eight years old, I went up to the window and started looking into uh, what was going on and unbeknownst to me on the other side of the parrot of the window there was a uh, a rebel uh with an automatic weapon he let off uh, <laughs> uh, several long uh rows of uh, of shots and um you know obviously on the other end seeing people that were wounded and all that other stuff so it was a pretty a pretty uh aggressive uh harassment kind of technique the um so that 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 kind of start, starts you you know thinking a little different than most seven year olds I, I would imagine, uh, but I think that the thing that really made it even more so was when Castro took over. Um, Castro took over in January of 1959, um, so I was nine years old you know uh, barely I was eight years old, um, and within six months, you could feel the difference. Uh, as a matter of fact, even before. Uh, In my school, uh, within a month, they were telling us, if your parents speak ill of the revolution, you have to report them. Um, They were making us wear military uniforms, little shorts and shirts with these little bandana things around our neck uh, that had different colors. I don't remember what they meant. And part of it was a uh, literacy program that they were starting. So what my class had to do was go in the field every couple of weeks and try to teach peasants how to read and write. I'm nine years old. How do you teach anybody to read and write? So right. anyway, it was a matter of control. It was a matter of militarization. And my my dad's business, he had a small coffee roasting uh, company. Uh, well, six months later, it was confiscated. Um, the uh, the persecutions of anybody who was part of the opposition um, was rampant and all these neighborhood watch type, uh, programs where you had people, unlike the ones here in the United States who were looking for thieves. Um, this was to, to report on the, on the people from that block. They had somebody at every single block reporting your comings and goings. So they very, very drastic change from the freedom that was there in spite of the Batista, you know, issues. So, uh, my parents decided we, we need to leave the country. This is not going to get fixed. And, uh, So we moved from the town that I lived in, in Central Province, up to Havana, um, because that was where he needed to be in order to do the paperwork or try to expedite it. And it started off kind of rough. My first day going up there for for a hopeful uh, departure, um, as we were driving through the the main park there, there was three men hanging from trees and phone poles um, with signs around their necks saying, "contra Revolutionary. Um, again, I'm, I'm not—I'm 10 years old by this time, and um, that that kind of leaves a mark on your brain. Subsequently, my my parents could not get out, so they sent me out um, through a uh, program called Peter Pan. And the Peter Pan program was established by the Catholic Church in order to get the children of those people that could not get you know—their families out; only their kids could get out. Um, and some of them originally were the opposition to Castro, but this, the, the program was open to everybody else. So at the uh, tender age of 10, I got on an airplane by myself, um, going to a country that I had never known of, neither did my dad. He had never been there, didn't even know if he could follow me. And uh, I ended up in a Catholic orphanage in Pueblo, Colorado. Um, discipline was strict and you had five different cultures and languages and ethnicities uh so it was a pretty rough place with a bunch of uh angry and frustrated and scared uh orphans
3: so in you know popular mainstream culture to some extent uh you know che Guevara is uh, romanticized and is a revolutionary uh you know there was a movie made about it and um when I was younger, uh, probably, I don't know, 12 or 13 or something like that, I have an older brother, and my uncle uh, is married to a Cuban woman, my aunt. They've been married for a long time. Uh, she was born in Cuba, you know, as was her her parents and, and that generation, um, but they've all since immigrated to the United States, or, or most of them anyway, uh, over in New Jersey, and um, my brother, I think he was like 14 at the time. He was wearing a Che Guevara shirt, and we would typically uh, have Thanksgiving dinner together at my uncle's house. So her family would be there, you know, our family would be there. So it, it would be a nice mix, you know. There's Cuban food, there's American food. Um, so he he was wearing this Che Guevara T-shirt, not because he you know he believed in that ideology, but he he just thought it was a cool shirt he greeted everybody. Uh, some of my aunts, uh, older family members were there and then my uncle pulled him to the side and told him he has to change his shirt. And, and that was the the first time that I, um, I'd realized that the, the way that, uh, Che was painted in like popular culture and, and media, uh, wasn't the same way that every, you know, all Cubans looked at him. And, um, uh, you know, that was shocking to me.
4: Well, you know, John, that that is actually a very good point to uh, to carry across because I have seen people with that shirt. And as a matter of fact, the, the brother, a very senior, very senior individual that I know was wearing that at a motorcycle event. And I walked up to him and I said, you know what that shirt is good for? And he goes, what? And I put my finger in the middle of his chest. I said to put a bullet through that. I said, give me five minutes and I'll tell you who this guy is. You have to understand Che Guevara was a, a creation of imagination of the romantic guerrilla fighter, the freedom fighter, uh, bar, right. you know, bar. and that's all communist propaganda. That is exact. They do that so much better than we could ever do. So this guy is, gets portrayed out there. Well, you know what his real call of fame was in Cuba? After they took over, once a week, he would tie three guys to, to poles in the courtyard of, of the jail. And he would come and shoot one of the three. So he would have a blank, a real bullet, and a blank kind of thing. So we would come up to you and go, click, ha, 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 boom, ha, 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 click, ha, ha, ha. That's the kind of guy you're going to be wearing a T-shirt about. Uh, He was a failed revolutionary. Uh, You saw what happened to him in Bolivia. And I'm very proud of the fact that I know some of the agency folks that were there that were instrumental in, 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 in uh, triangulating him and getting the uh, Bolivians to capture him.
3: Yeah, I think he was killed in, I think, 67 or 66. Something like that, yeah. 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 Uh, and, and I actually read an excellent book about that. Uh, there were some agency folks involved, some who I believe were of Cuban descent. Um, Felix Portugues. Yes, and uh, and I think an army special forces team trained up a group of uh, Bolivian military. Yeah. So um. <clears throat> so eventually you make it to Miami with your family. Um, you know you you speak about this in great detail in your book about you know the difficulties of it. Um, being in a new place with a different culture, uh, and then at some point, you got involved with. Uh, you know the wrong crowd right Uh, guys in the street fighting things like that you spoke about this later in the book when you were going through your, your training to be an officer at the cia where you spoke about like situational awareness and that kind of thing did anything that you learned in the streets when you were a kid in miami did you know about situational awareness did any of that translate into your time working professionally as an intelligence officer
4: yeah, you know, I, absolutely. I, I go back to my original comment. I think that God puts you on your path and forges your your character and your persona along the way. And sometimes, you know, it's would you think it's a detour is actually the, the the road you're supposed to be taking. You know, I, I wasn't robbing banks or Seven Elevens or anything like that. Right. right. right, right. As we then spoke smoke pot, we lifted weights. We're in the martial arts. And everywhere we went, we didn't take crap from anybody. So we're getting in a weekly fight at every club that we ever go to as, as high school kids. Uh, they had these parties that were every weekend. There was these parties that people could go to. And so that, that was the extent of it. But, but yes, absolutely. I think that it gave me a grounding on brotherhood, on uh, fighting together, on um, having to be tough. I'm not I'm not condoning any of this. As a matter of fact, I got out of it as, as soon as I graduated from high school. But, um, you know, I honestly believe that that I did. And and and, it's, and there's a part that I think is in the book uh, where when I was going through the spy school at the farm, um, there was this, we were on a stage and you're supposed to do a dead drop. Um, and I came by and I, when it was my turn and all the students are watching, all the instructors are watching and you're in a scenario. So I come around and do my dead drop and the the instructor, who was a China hand, he was a denied area China hand, pulls me to the side and he says, I'm reporting you to the FBI. And I said, sir, what, what are you talking about? He goes, you've had prior training.
3: Wow. And,
4: and I said, no, sir. And then he started laughing. He said, no, I I, I know who you are, are Your background, but uh, yeah, the, the, you have what it takes to do this kind of stuff. You had the, the stoic you know cool even the old inside you're nervous whatever Um, right so that that was that was a very crystallizing uh, reality that yeah the the school of hard lumps there uh, paid off at one time
3: so you graduated high school um, you moved away from you know fighting and and that kind of thing uh, in Miami Uh, and then the next Step for you was joining the Air Force and becoming a a pararescueman.
4: Yeah, that's correct. Actually, uh, they, it's a very important uh, phase of my life because when I graduated in 1970, I went to a uh, school in Miami Dade Junior College. <clears throat> in my first semester of school there, um, this is during the hippie years. These are the you know the uh, make peace not war, you know make love not war, whatever. And Vietnam was raging. And it was around early 71 when I was my first semester and the the hippies put out a notice that the following day they were going to burn, take down and burn the American flag. Come join us. So I said, that ain't going to happen. So I called some of my old homies, six of us total. And there was about 20 hippies. Uh, It was not a fair fight for them. Um, (laughs) Riff T-shirts and beads all over the place but here's here's the point to the story though at the end of that fight i looked up and i saw that american flag waving and for the first time in my life i felt proud of what i was doing and that was a eureka moment six months later i joined the elite uh air force pararescue which is part of our special operations uh command and um that, that was my start in in starting to pay back because when, when that when that happened it crystallized the fact to me that I had a debt of honor to this country that the sacrifices that my parents made were way above beyond whatever sacrifices I made at the orphanage that was nothing compared to what my parents went through putting their only child on an airplane not knowing if they were going to see him and um, I just I de- I developed this debt of honor and I went to Pararescue because I wanted to serve in Vietnam. My, my uh, draft number—we had draft back then. The draft, my draft number was so high. My parents were celebrating because they said you'll never get called. Imagine their chagrin when I actually enlisted. And that was right. my goal—to go into Pararescue to to get over to Vietnam.
3: And the in Vietnam, the uh, the PJs were doing a lot of work. Um, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and and then, their,
4: their, their primary job is, I mean, yeah, we jump on our airplanes, we do scuba diving, we do mountain climbing, but primarily we're medics that goes so where other people can and, and get our, our, our brethren out.
3: Yeah, you know, more recently in Afghanistan and Iraq, um, the PJs have been involved in a, a lot of scenarios where they were uh, called to assist in like mass casualty situations. Um, you know Americans getting killed or, or badly wounded, and the PJ's came in and you know done phenomenal work in getting people out alive and, and that kind of thing. So um, it's really yeah, fantastic I'm stuff. Of
4: an association and and yeah. uh, you know it's it's uh, during the Afghanistan uh, era and also Iraq, um, there were a lot of paramedics attached to special units for that for that very reason. And there's a a, a named uh, Ivan Ruiz received a silver star because they went on a raid with the Green Beret team and mm-hmm. two of the guys got popped right off the bat and he literally saved them and killed three or four if not more of the bad guys uh, and while, while at the same time patching these guys up and bringing them to safety so absolutely I'm very proud of that association I wish, I wish I could have done more with pararescue but I did okay with the agency
3: so how long were you in the Air Force
4: I did two years active Um, and then in 74, I I got my beret real late 72, early 73. And, um, in 74, I, you know, I knew that Vietnam was, was over. I wasn't going to go anywhere. So I wrote a letter to the agency. And for, for those who are history buffs, the seventies were the years of attrition in the government. They had been cutting down post Vietnam, the military, and definitely the intelligence community was being, you know, decimated. And I got a real nose back because you know, look, you got some great credentials, blah, blah, blah. But we're hiring, we're not hiring, we're firing, kind of kind of message. So I didn't want to stay active duty because I was all I was doing was jumping every other day and, and doing things for, for no purpose. So uh, as my, my usual good luck would have it, the um the captain of the Metro Dade Rescue, Jim Wilson, was a PJ in my unit, uh, the 301st when I went to the, you know over there, the three oh first. And uh, he's the one that talked me into riding rescue. So I rode rescue for six years in in the 70s, which were pretty exciting uh, times in Miami. Um, and I applied again for the agency in 1980. And at this time, they came back and said, you know, with your paramedic credentials and your pararescue credentials, we could use you on contract if you're willing to come up periodically and train with our special activities division, ground branch guys, which are the special operations forces for the CIA. I said, absolutely. I did that um, on and off for six months. Um, And then something really changed, which was uh, Reagan took over, Uh, President Reagan took over in 81. The hostages were released from Iran, and he made it a point that we are going to fight the communist threat in, in Latin America, starting with Nicaragua, who uh, had had the, uh, the Sandinista regime taken over and had to declare themselves full-blown communists, and they were being supplied by the Soviet Union via Cuba. So uh, at the time, the agency did not have a uh, paramilitary guy with native Spanish-speaking capabilities. So they all, who was that PJ Cuban kid, you know, blah, 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 and they tracked me down, and, and that's, how I got, uh, that's how I got to, uh, to be a staff in, in, in the agency.
3: So at that point, uh, you are working as an uh, a, a paramilitary officer? Would that be the, the proper title?
4: I'm sorry, say that again?
3: Would it be proper to say you were, a, a, at this point uh, in Nicaragua, were you a, a paramilitary officer?
4: Yes, absolutely. As, as opposed
3: absolutely. to a case officer? Okay. Absolutely,
4: yeah. I, I had not gone through any training. Um, again... Street Savvy uh, there helped me a lot in, in getting along with rough people and, and everything else. But uh, I, I actually received no training from the agency prior to going to Honduras. And the, the Contra program there in the north, there's a, there's a Mosquito area, which is to the west. In the north, between the Mosquito and the Spaniards, there were 10 camps. And for the first 14 months of that program, I was there a little over three years. I was the only American allowed in the camps because at the time it was still the Covert Action Program, Black Op, that meant that we had to hide the American hand. So I was there as a Honduran captain Got promoted to major the second year, um, all on paper, of course. And, and that was my cover. But I, I was there for a little over three years, sleeping in a jungle hammock from Monday through Friday, um, loving it, loved every minute of it, but as a Honduran major.
3: I have a a friend of mine who um, he was a Vietnamese refugee. Uh, you know, he was a, a, a baby when the Vietnam War ended, but eventually he went on to join um, Special Forces and served for twenty plus years.
4: Um, God bless
3: him. Uh, yeah, and he served you know all over the world, but the last couple of years of in his career, he served in Africa, and oftentimes he was working with the agency. And uh, one of the things that he always uh, had. Spoken about, or or had spoken about, sometimes was, uh, you know, multiple deployments to Iraq and Afghanistan, and you know, going after high value targets. But you know, you're he he would speak about how you know you're going in with an entire team, you have uh, air assets, and so it's it's dangerous, but uh, it's very manageable. But then he spoke about later in his career running what he called singleton operations in Africa. And how dangerous it is to be literally the only American for hundreds of miles in some instances um, living and working among local you know rebels and and whatnot and and just he just put an emphasis on on how how dangerous that is compared to you know being with an entire specialized unit Um, so you know that's and then you're out there uh, you know, with very little training from the agency, you, you had your training in the Air Force, but um, and then and working with these basically rough, rough people. I mean, it's, it's really fascinating stuff.
4: Well, you know, I, I uh, totally agree with the friends uh, comments. Um, you know, I've, I've always told people I, I've been in harm's way, both in the heat of combat and in the, in the coldness of, of the Cold War. And it, it takes a different kind of stealing of your of of your of your of your spine in order to, to do this because like like your friend so well articulated when you're going into on a raid everybody's kitted up everybody's ready you are initiating something kinetic um, when you are out doing solo operations if you draw your weapon your mission is you know it's is compromised. But if you, if you draw your weapon, chances are you needed to. And there's a couple of stories in, in the book where I, where I had to. And um, it, it, is, it is going from uh, being in an awareness state to the, that moment that is hard to replicate in training, which is the old poop moment when something pops up that you weren't expecting. That's a big difference between having eight guys lined up at a door, squeeze, squeeze, splash band, go in and do your room clearing stuff.
3: Yeah, there were um there was a story in particular um I forgot the exact circumstances, a story from the book. Um but you had heard that some guys were going to attempt to assassinate you and and maybe one or two other guys uh in a, a jungle camp. So you guys had to at night sort of sneak away and set up a defensive position and and rotate on keeping watch and things like that. And um and I, I just think that was just a great example and when i was reading that what my friend told me just like lit up in my head um and then there was another instance where you you had to talk some guys out of a sort of a mutiny type situation and then uh as you and you said this in the book as you were walking away from them you thought well i haven't been shot in the back so that's a good sign um, <laughs> Yeah.
4: Well, you know, the first one was actually where I think my street uh, creds actually uh, really played a role. What happened on the first one was I had gone there and I had that that camp had gone rogue. The commander had been uh, neutralized and these two guys that took over were actually thugs and they started stealing cattle and doing all kinds of stupid stuff. So I was sent to bring both these guys up. So I grabbed the first one. I uh, was able to grab him, uh, despite of the fact that his bodyguard was there, threw him in the helicopter and sent him back home. And I stayed behind and I went to the camp and looking for the second guy. So when I got to the camp, I'm walking around and, you know, I, again, I, there's a certain feeling you have when you have a streetwise thing. Something was off. Some people were looking at me scared and others were looking at me angry. And I'm I'm walking through a a little area where there's some bushes. And from behind the bush, I hear this major, major. And it was this young, probably 20-year-old kid who a couple of months before had come to me and said, my wife is very ill. we don't have the medicines. Could you help me with a little bit of money so I can get it from the nearest town pharmacy? And I gave him 20 bucks. Well, this kid whispered to me. He said, sir. They're, they're they're going to kill you tonight because they know that you took uh, krill and that you're still looking for the other guy, auto. So um, that was my, my first, un- unbeknownst to me, recruitment uh, of somebody that literally um, saved my bacon because uh, when they put us in the compound, usually they put us in the center because it's the safest place. Well, they put me on the outskirts. Well, that's a clue right there. And as soon as it got dark, uh, we... There was three of us. We jumped over outside the window, crawled up to the uh, high ground. We had some boulders. We weren't about to start wandering around because, you know, that's really rough territory. And, you know, the Sandinistas are nearby and everything else. So we just hunker down. I uh, had a couple of grenades. I had our automatic weapons and pistols. And we just waited. And sure as hell, uh, about 10 o'clock at night, I think it was, they came into the hooch, six or seven guys with flashlights. And they were... Very upset to see that I wasn't sleeping in there with, the, with my other two colleagues. They were that were not agency guys. These were Nika, Nicaraguas. So the next morning, you know, when, when the sun came out, I, we went to breakfast just like nothing had happened. And it was funny because now I could see some people smiling and other people growling um, who were not happy that I had, that I had survived that. But uh, that
3: was uh, Street Smarts uh, kicking in right there. So eventually, uh, so you spent a total of I think roughly three years with those guys. Yeah, about a three and a quarter years, yes, sir. Uh, So at some point, and and everything that I'm speaking about, it's spoken about in great detail in the book for the audience. So um, at some point, you guys started looking at uh, infiltrating into areas, uh, you know, via. Boats and, and the water um, and, uh, and you know, I know diving and, and water operations is a, a thing that PJs are proficient in and are proficient in. And um, you know there was a scenario where you guys went out and, and there was some difficulty already because of the, uh, the ethnic differences between the two groups that you were working with or, or tribal differences. And, um, you guys are tra- attempting to infiltrate into an area that was heavily patrolled, uh, on the water. Uh, the, the two teams had to, uh, divert and, and one team was hiding Another teams, uh, engine was giving them problems. Uh, and this is all happening at night. And then, um, you basically went into like PJ mode and, and you know, jumped out of a helicopter, linked up with the guys, uh, was able to fix whatever issues was happening. Um, can you talk a little bit about that night?
4: Yeah, you know, let me give, let me give you a little bit of the prequel. The, the original thing was um, the headquarters came in with a, a demand that we needed to do something more than raids and ambushes. That we needed to hit the Sandinistas in a way that they would get, that would be noticed. So I, I came up with the idea. Of using my Mosquito Indians. Mosquito Indians are live on the East Coast. They're Native Americans, very heavily uh, uh, mixed with Black slaves that washed ashore during that epoch, and uh, incredible people, super nice until they don't have to be. Uh, natural hunters, natural you know uh, you know field field folks, and I had met some of them who had been lobster divers. So I, I kept that in mind. They were pretty tough kids. So my proposal was to build a scuba team that we could go and blow up Puerto Cabezas Pier. And we did, we actually, uh, and I was with them. Uh, I launched them from, from the very end. We went into Nicaragua waters and we blew up Puerto Cabezas. Well, based on the success of that operation, and like like you said, I, I'm giving you a one page of uh, probably 15 pages of that part of the story because it's pretty pretty interesting. Um, when uh, When headquarters realized how successful that operation had been, they said, we want to do the same thing on the east, on the west coast against a, a port called per- Corinto. Puerto Cabezas was important because that was the belly button to Cuba. That's where all the help from Cuba was coming in. Ammunition, fuel, oil, all this kind of stuff was coming in through the Puerto Cabezas pier. The importance of Corinto is that was their big commercial. This is where all the food stuff would come in. This is where they would do their exports of tobacco, whatever it was that they were trying to, to sell overseas. And um, they asked if I could, if my divers could do it, and I said absolutely. But then they, they confronted me with the fact that they said, look, politically, we we can have the mosquito divers, but the boat crew has to be from the Nicaraguan Spaniard side. Well, they, they call the the, the mosquito call them Spaniards, but they're just the white, primarily white uh, Nicaraguans, which are in, in, in the uh, in the west coast. So I told them from the beginning, uh, and, of course, I was a GS-10, maybe a GS-11, so I, I had no, not much traction, and I said, guys, this isn't going to work. Uh, these people do not trust each other. They do not know each other, and nobody had lived with these people like I had to be able to agree with me or disagree with me. Well, anyway, I got I got overruled. So my guys were sent in, my four divers with in two boats, with four uh, maritime captains, quote-unquote, and when they got to Corinto, uh, the, the there, was, there was a lot of presence. There was a lot of presence back and forth. The, everybody was kind of spooked. And the uh, Mosquito Indians said, we're not getting in the water because we know you're going to leave us behind. Now, if we would have had Mosquito captains, that would have been an issue. They would have either said, hey, this is too hot. Let's go. Or I will wait for you. And these guys would have gotten in the water because they live with each other. They trust each other. They, they fought together. So what happened was both boats were high-speed stuff that we had given them, but not very seaworthy in the sense of uh, of, uh, they were fragile. I mean, these things were extremely fast. Um, And both boats broke down. One was actually floating in the Gulf of Fonseca, which divides Nicaragua from Honduras and El Salvador on the west side. And the other one had made it into the mangroves and was beached there. I mean, they were literally, you know, hiding in the mangroves. And uh, so I went in with, with my, uh, my helicopter. Uh, I, I had been on the radio for probably 24 hours awake, uh, talking to my guys before deployment, during deployment, and, and then the beginning of the extraction. And when they told me that they were a, a bobbing cork in the middle of uh, Nicaraguan waters uh, near the Gulf of Fonseca, uh, I had a helicopter crew. And I went to my, my boss at the time, well, the, the, the base chief at the time, Leon, and I said, Leon, I'm not leaving my guys behind. He, he said, I'd expect that. What's your plan? So the pararescue part of it is uh, w- one of the things that we do uh, very well, and it was called low and slow back in my day. I don't know what it's called now. But it's literally, you know, the helicopter's going, you know, 15 feet above the water, 15 knots, and you go out, mass things to snorkel, and you go do your stuff. So you literally jump off the airplane, no parachute, into the water. And the other thing that we do is extraction. We didn't have a hoist. So what I came up with was we had six uh, pieces of rope with a makeshift uh, seat. And it's called, it's the, it was a homemade stable rig um, that people that, that have been in the military would understand what that is. So we stowed that, we went over to the boat. I had uh, extra fuel, extra water tools, spark plugs. And I jumped into the water with, with this gear and the, 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 the kids on the boat were really impressed that somebody would jump out of an airplane. And the funny thing is, though, John, you know, they, it's called low and slow. But my pilots were Honduran pilots. They were not used to doing water. So this was a low. This was a high and slow. Uh, I was at least 30, 30 plus feet <laughs> off, the, off the water. When uh, I realized that we're not going to go any, any, any lower. I said, well, hello. I I can't, I can't, you know, limb, you know, linger here because we're going to get shot out of the sky. Hmm. So we recovered the boat. Uh, One of my guys had actually had uh, some uh, eye issues that we became really chronic. We went back to the base, refurbished the boat. The spark plugs were shot. That's what it was. It was something to do with the spark plugs. And luckily I had brought some. So we went on the second boat now to find their second boat. So, um, they're the one that was stuck in the mangroves. And that was the second part of the ordeal. Now we're in Nicaraguan waters at night. This, this latter one was done 10 o'clock in the morning, broad daylight. Um, but by, the, by that night, the Sandinistas knew that there was something going on because they knew that there had been a helicopter that near their, their shore. They knew there was something going on. So they were patrolling all over the place. <clears throat> and as we approached in this little, you know, it's a 26, 27-foot uh, open fisherman, but with twin Corvette engines kind of thing that did 50 knots. um, We are, we're coming in and the Sandinistas start popping flares, looking, they knew that there was something out there. We had an aircraft on the, uh, on the air that was uh, helping us with triangulation. And, um, you know, the the, rough seas, we had like 12 foot seas. And on that little boat, it was just beating us to a pulp. We lost our radios. But before we uh, lost all comms, we had been able to triangulate exactly where that second boat was. Well, the Sandinistas not only kept uh, popping f- flares, but they started doing what's called recon by fire, where you take this particular area segment and you, and you put rounds down range and stop to see if somebody shoots back. And then, okay, we, we got them. Now you-, you you come in with a hammer. Well, I had an AR-15 and a, and a Browning 9mm. I was about to get in a seaborne firefight with the sandinistas so we uh we ended up having to pull the plug but we told our our, our mosquito Indians that that were still on the, on the on the on the mangrove there stand by we're coming for you in the morning so now i go back uh and and i'm I'm on, I'm on my probably you know 40 48 hours of no sleep or you know and um next morning we had six or eight piranha boats which are these real fast uh, little boats that we had given uh, the locals, and they fearlessly took us right into Nicaragua, right into the shore, latched that boat onto uh, them and towed them back out to uh, to international waters, and then uh, eventually to, to our uh, safe haven, which was an island just off of the, in, in the Gulf of Fonseca. That, that action there got me my first medal in the agency, and when I do public speaking and pararescue, I, I that's the story that I always tell because every PJ will understand the complexities of that and, and uh the proficiency that we had in that. It was second nature to me.
3: Yeah, I know even I know PJs work in, you know, disaster zones and, and things like that. So outside of, you know, a a military theater, PJs are working to rescue people, you know, during a hurricane season in the Caribbean, things like that. So then uh, after your three-year stint working uh, down there, you return to the States and then you go to the farm to become a CIA officer. That is correct. Uh, So how long did it take you uh, to go through that entire process where you're now a case officer?
4: Well, the the first thing that I had to do was finish my college. I, I had two years of college, and you have to have four years of degree to to become a staff officer. And uh, uh, I was already a paramilitary guy, but I you know I needed that other training. So they sponsored me for for a year. So I did a two years in a year, graduated from distinction uh, with distinction from George Mason University, and then I went to the farm. Now the the actual farm pipeline for the average outside individual that gets hired. Being a college kid or a former military guy, whatever, um, being already internal as a as a as a uh, paramilitary guy, my 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 course was shorter because I didn't have to do. You know, I've been through SEER school and and, and all these other schools, and they have many versions of this. So they have a they have a, P, a very robust PM phase, paramilitary phase, to immerse these these mostly civilian kids. Um, and they were kids compared to me because I was one of the oldest guys in the group. Um, but I didn't have to go through that. But the actual farm is—I uh, think it was around four months of in very intense um, tradecraft training, reporting, uh, surveillance, detection, uh, dead drops, uh, covert communications, uh, recruitment, agent handling, all that kind of stuff—and uh, all evolved into real-life scenarios with very seasoned operations officers as your role players. And I did very well in the course. I was. You know, fairly high up in my class, and um, I enjoyed it thoroughly. But for me, it was a very big change because now I had gone from a blunt instrument to an instrument that had to be able to fly under the radar and still maintain, you know, your cool and everything else. But it was uh, it was it was one of those growth periods for me.
3: So now that you are in the CIA as an officer, as a staff officer. Uh, was your next assignment completely different from what you were doing uh, prior to that?
4: Yeah, I, I was supposed to go to El Salvador, which would have been a little bit more kinetic. But at the last minute, um, the chief of station in in uh, Costa Rica, who had uh, met me in Honduras, asked for me by name to run the Southern Front. And the Southern Front was uh, of, the, of the Contra program was um, primarily sent former Sandinistas that had turned against the regime and they had gone south uh, rather than north where where all the other folks were. And the the biggest difference was where in Honduras, we had an incredible ally. I mean, the, the Hondurans were so supportive of everything we had to do. That was incredible. Where Costa Rica was completely the opposite. They were actually hunting us down because they did not want the Sandinistas to think that they were supporting this, and uh, and thus they they were actually persecuting my guys. So I went from, you know, jungle jungle pants, uh, you know, hat, uh, Car 15, Browning high, high power, uh, this kind of stuff to coat and tie, working out of the embassy, and and still having to meet with the contras, um, recruit local individuals that would help me. Uh, through their 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 um, air, you know mini airports or, or boats or whatever to get these guys out to to training and bringing them back and that kind of stuff. So I went from a very kinetic environment because we did we did uh, uh, you know confront uh, some violence along the way in the first three and a half years. Um, but in this period, um, it was all kind of like working with the, the French resistance in World War II, where you're literally meeting clandestinely in, in a town where. The services are
3: looking for you. So, you had done this. So now you're you've done this role where you're, you know, doing the sort of cloak and dagger type of work, um, and then at some point, you get involved in the the counterterrorism uh, role. Uh, can you talk about that?
4: Yeah, right after this uh, this one assignment, um, I was uh, asked to go down to a uh, country in, in Latin America, which I'm not at liberty to say, but um, at the time they had two major insurgencies. Uh, one was Maoist and the other one was just plain communist and both had um, a lot of uh, nexus to uh, to narco-trafficking. <clears throat> that was my first uh, counter-terrorist assignment. That was from 88 through 90. And uh, it was Indian territory. They had... Um, killed a lot of people They were in the city. They were literally in, in the capital. Um, kidnappings were, were uh, current, blowing up all the power lines was current. Uh, so we started this counterterrorism uh, program supporting the, the local uh, law enforcement guys there. And uh, I did that unilaterally for, for two years. I recruited a terrorist from the from Maoist organization. Uh, we were able to neutralize two or three cells that were targeting Americans in, in, that, in that city. Um, and so it was a very successful trip, but now was a combination of both. Now, yes, you had tradecraft and you had to fly under the radar, but most of the time when I went out to meet people, I was not in an, in an embassy vehicle. I was not in coat and tie and I was gunned up all the time anyway, because like I said, it was pretty rough there anyway. But now I'm meeting with people that chances are that if they're turned or compromised, they're going to they're sell you out. And um, so it was very, uh, very interesting times for me. It was another, another growth experience, but I really enjoyed working that, you know, pointy end part of our tradecraft capability. You know, there, there's, there, the agency primarily during the Cold War, we did most of our work out of embassies and working out of uh, commercial cover, dealing with the commercial uh, folks in a particular country or the diplomatic presence anywhere. <laughs> That's where we would meet people, you know, recruit them, run them to get the information that our country needs to know what's going on in specific areas. Um, When terrorism started, um, it it became kind of like a diversion, you know, uh, to the point that, hey, this is this is very, very threatening. It's very real. Um, So uh, a mentor of mine, Dewey Claridge, in 1986 started uh, the Counter Terrorist Center. Um, of which I eventually became chief of operations many years later.
3: So I know at a point you did some work in the Philippines. Um, when you were working there, was it also in the counterterrorism role?
4: Well, it was more the counterinsurgency and counterterrorism. Um, the, okay. uh, the, main, the main culprits in, in the Philippines was the New People's Army, the MPA, And they were they were a communist uh, organization and they were in in, in, they were in the city. They were in in, in Manila. And as a matter of fact, I got there uh, uh, shortly after probably six or eight months after Nick uh, Colonel Nick Rowe, a legendary uh, Green Beret, was assassinated. He was the. uh, Oh, yes. Yeah. And uh, he was ambushed and killed right right in the streets of, of, of Manila. So, but our program was very robust, working with uh, the constabulary, the navy, and and and, the, and of course the army, and uh, we were providing them all kinds of training, uh, surveillance training, uh, signals intercept, uh, and providing them the intelligence and helping them process whatever they were they were gathering. So it became a real good team effort, and I worked very closely. But that was my first declared job. I was actually known to the local service to be a, a CIA guy. And um, we we I was I was out in the, in the hinterlands uh, three days out of the week every every single week because I was the guy that would go with the techs to the to the camps where they had you know uh, a mountaintop top with barbed wire and claymore mines uh, Indian Territory you land your helicopter there and you spend the day teaching these guys how to use their their the new gear or whatever and then you know get out of there without getting blown out of the sky so it was uh it was interesting and uh and you, and I know you read it in the book there there was one incident where we almost got ambushed and uh, came pretty close to um uh, getting into a, a losing firefight
3: and the the scenario where you were ambushed was this by pro uh, commun- a pro-communist group or
4: yeah, this was the MPA. because the, the, the second group uh, that's, that was major there was in, lo- in the lower uh, province of, of Mindanao, and those are the uh, the radicalized Muslim elements are down there, and they they were they were really uh, picking up speed, but nothing like they eventually became. <clears throat> so the, these guys were called sparrows, NPA uh, sparrows were hitmen, and as a matter of fact, you can Google MPA sparrows, and you will see a video. Of how these guys operated, what they did was they carried a, a 1911A1 45 Cavalier pistol in their in their in their waist, no holster, um, safety off, uh, grip safety tape down, and they held it up with their left hand, which was in their pocket. And what they would do is they would walk up to a car or people, whatever, pop that gun out, put two rounds in the person's head, reholster, and walk off, and nobody ever saw them. They were ghosts. Wow. They were called sparrows. So we came out of uh, out of our dinner. There was six of us, uh, two uh, Filipino officers, both captains, two of our techs, uh, and me and my my partner, who were both case officers. He was a Vietnam vet, very squared away guy, Davis. And when we walked out, uh, as soon as we were the last two walking out, there was these three guys 15 yards away from us on the street that were talking. And as soon as we came out, they looked at each other, they got three abreast, and they started walking towards us. The two guys on the outside had their left hands in their pocket uh, and their shirts out. So I'll go like, I drew my weapon immediately. Now, for those who have been in in, in, uh, uh, adrenaline-driven areas, the first thing that happens uh, under that kind of adrenaline is you get tunnel vision. All all you seem to see is that, you know, um, that threat. Auditory exclusion. You don't hear. I mean, you could fire a gun and you're not, not
1: you know, hurt you later,
4: but it, it won't hurt at the time. So, <clears throat> but imagine this, John, if, if somebody points a gun to you or me, what's the reaction? You're going to put your hands up and go, whoa, what's this about? Or, or go for your gun or whatever.
1: Right.
4: We When these guys saw that I drew my weapon, and unbeknownst to me, so did my buddy Davis, because again, I had tunnel vision. I couldn't hear anything he was saying. He couldn't see me either. Um, these guys... Never even blinked. They kept eye contact, even though they had two, you know, nine millimeter pistols pointed at them at, you know, less than 15 yards by now. And they just kept looking at us. And the guy in the middle had the smart, like, we'll get you next time. And, uh, you know, that was a big lesson for me because I was always into the fast draw, you know, fighting kind of stuff. I realized that awareness beats fast draw every single time. And that applies to our law enforcement officers. That applies to civilians that are that are hoping to protect their family. That the best tool is uh, carry a gun, but be aware of what's going around you, and, and avoidance is the key. I, I I guarantee you one thing: if I had been reacting to these sparrows drawing their weapon, I wouldn't be talking to you.
3: So when when you saw them. And you noticed they had their left hand in their left pocket. Did you already know that that was a tactic they used at that point?
4: Oh, absolutely, yeah. We were on okay. that. I mean, the the, uh, the uh, Philippine MPA Sparrows were renowned for that capability. Uh, they had shot uh, a couple of uh, Air Force guys up at uh, Clark Air Force Base um, in uh, the town of Angeles. Uh, same thing. You know, the guys were looking, waiting for a taxi, and they just came up, popped them back in the head, put their guns in, and nobody even saw them people heard the gunshots and the guys are gone. So we knew the MO. Uh, We had been briefed by the local services. They, that this was something that they were very, very proficient at doing. And and you got to understand you're, you're in a country third world country where you have a handful of North Americans working out of the embassy, supporting the mission uh, with the army, with the constabulary, with the Navy, somebody's going to be reporting on you. And, And if you, know that there are Americans helping your, you know, your enemy, in this case, you know, the, the MPA looking at us as enemies. Um, What's the most efficient way of, of, of neutralizing that help? And that, uh, that is take out the people that are there that are the providers. So uh, we knew that, that, that we had bullseyes on us and and we were pretty aware. Uh, But, but absolutely, this was, um, This was a known um, modus
3: operandi of of the MPA Sparrows. Yeah, the the situational awareness part is so important. You know, I live in New York City, and for years I worked in the city, so I would uh, commute to work and take the subway. Um, And there were, you know, there was a a time where the crime was down and and things weren't so hectic. Now it's, it's, uh, crime is up again and whatever. Um, But... You know, I would be on the subway, and I, I remember this particular period of time where uh, several people were getting slashed in the face on on different train lines in New York. Um, so, I, you know, I would, I'd be on the train, one headphone in, the other headphone out, and every time, uh, you know, we pull into a station, I'll just see who's getting on, and who's getting off, and and like just kind of check out body language and that kind of thing. And I remember. Uh, I was on the train, and this guy gets on, and he 's clearly agitated he 's kind of like fidgeting a little bit he 's looking around he 's constantly moving and Then I noticed he had something in his hand i couldn 't quite see what it was like it it might have been like a screwdriver or something like that and I remember thinking like I wonder if this is the guy who 's cutting people uh, so then at that point i 'm like i 'm not going to stop paying attention to this guy and and then I remember there was a woman right next to him. I don't know if she was on an iPad or a Kindle or something like that. And uh, she had no idea that this this guy who's fidgety and, like, looking around and he's, he's, he's still showing all these signs of potential uh, threat, uh, and she had no idea he was right next to her. And it's like if he turns around and slashes her, she's completely unaware of it. And then uh, most recently there was a shooting in the subway in, in Brooklyn. Yes. yes. And... There was some cell phone footage of, uh, of in the car. And I guess the guy was in between the cars shooting. And then you can see people getting up and moving away. But there was one guy who was just looking at it and now reacting. And um, it's just kind of fascinating to see how people are just like live in this bubble of thinking, you know, they're going to be safe and secure at all times. Before we continue, I want to give a thank you to our sponsor for this podcast. And that's 10000 they are a men's training brand. Uh, they make phenomenal gear. Uh, to test out their gear, I went to the gym with a shirt and a pair of shorts from 10,000. I went on my toughest day, which is legs. Uh, I hit it for about 45 minutes of weightlifting and then 20 minutes or so on the Stairmaster. And I sweat a lot uh, on this leg day. And normally I'm wearing a regular shirt and I'm drenched and Uh, Once I'm done with my workout, I have to change shirts before I leave the gym, but uh, this shirt from 10,000, it handles the sweat really well. I'm not sure what they do to it. Uh, You know, maybe they sprinkle a little magic on it, but it's really phenomenal. Uh, I recommend it for anyone who's active. And uh, 10,000 works with top strength and endurance athletes to co-design, test, and develop their gear so you know it's heavily vetted before it shows up at your door. Get up now and get 15% off your purchase. Go to 10,000.cc and enter code GLOBALRECON. That's T-E-N-T-H-O-U-S-A-N-D.cc and enter the code GLOBALRECON to get 15% off. They offer free shipping, free returns, and a lifetime guarantee. Now get off your ass and get the highest quality, best fitting, most comfortable training shorts you've ever worn from 10,000.
4: Yeah, it's it's, it's quite, I call it the ostrich effect. You stick your hand in the ground and hope nothing bites you in the butt. But um, in this day and age, whether it's New York or you know Jacksonville or Baltimore or Chicago or Miami, wherever, um, awareness saves, saves lives. Because um, again, uh, a gunfight when you are reacting to a threat, you are already behind the power curve. And you know that that's one of the fallacies of of, of regular training where people have the static uh, the target in front of you. And when they say up or contact front or whatever, or the targets flip, you stay put and you, and you draw on that target. That's when you draw your weapon. Well, in reality, what you're reacting to is somebody with something, whether it's a knife, a machete, a baseball bat or a gun, and now you have to draw that weapon. And if they have a gun, their, their gun is probably you know further out of the holster than yours because you noticed it at the end. So again, that's where awareness comes in. And, and we talk about that in the book with the Cooper colors, which are levels of awareness where where you should reside in your mind, uh, which is in, in yellow at the very basic. Orange is where you start looking at things and go, hmm, gee, that could be, but probably isn't, but let me see if that happens. Uh, this is what I'm going to do. And then red is when the proverbial manure hits the fan and you have that oh poop moment, but now you have a plan. If you don't have a plan, if you're surprised in those kind of attacks, uh, and th- and there's, there's been studies done uh, of this uh, ad nauseum, especially in uh, European terrorism of the 70s and 80s, that those who saw something wrong and were able to get what they say, get off the X, uh, get off that point where the, where the attacker expected you to freeze, uh, those people survived. And the ones that were surprised, uh, those people perished.
3: So then you, you finish your assignment up uh, in the Philippines, and then what was next for you? Was this now where you're getting into the countering uh, Islamic terrorism?
4: Well, yes. Initially, I, I, um, I, I, I went to the Koreas for a while. I, I was the, uh, the, the liaison guy in Seoul for the agency. Working with the local service there, and the local police, and and the Eighth uh, Army, which is the U.S. Army presence there. Uh, I, I did that from '93 through '95, and when I came out of that, um, it's when I went back to the counterterrorism side because I had done it in '86. Uh, I'm sorry, '88 through uh, through '90. I had done it in the in, in the Philippines. I was that was definitely a CTC position there also. Um, then there was the, this hiatus of, of being in in, in Seoul, um, and then I went back to, to the CTC. I, I was a branch chief for uh, Palestinian Hezbollah and all that kind of thing, branch, all, all the around Israel kind of terrorism. and But I wasn't there long because um, probably a couple of months into my tenure as a branch chief, uh, I had gotten my GS-15, which is our colonel rank equivalent. Uh, I got called in by the chief of operations at the center and said, look, we're starting a task force. It's going to be a, a actual virtual station. It's going to be a station outside of the uh, headquarters targeting a particular terrorist. And, he, and they said, his name is Osama bin Laden. And I said, who? I had never heard his name. Um, right. Well, lo and behold, this is, you know, this is late 1995, early 1996. Uh, when, uh, we started the, uh, Osama bin Laden task force, I was the senior operations officer and deputy chief of station. The, the chief was Mike Shoyer, who was a renowned analyst, uh, but not an operator. Uh, and we had an, another ops officer and then just some very, very capable, um, analysts and targeting officers that, that started working the account. And, and that, that again was, was, was a big eye opener for me because, um, By this time now, I'm I'm starting to have visibility into the politics of of, of both, you know, both headquarters policies, politics, and our political government writ large policies. And, uh, you know, in in 1996, middle of 1996, while I was the deputy chief of station there, we could have gotten bin Laden anytime we wanted to. He was in Khartoum. uh, By Cooper colors. he was in the white. He wasn't paying attention. He drove his mer- white Mercedes by himself half the time. The bodyguards that they had were, you know, mediocre at best. They were they were guerrilla fighters. That that that's what they were good at. But that doesn't transfer to VIP protection. <clears throat> and we had a guy in, on the ground, legendary, very legendary guy, very good friend of mine. Just talked to him 15 minutes ago. Uh, he's 92 years old now. Has eight Purple Hearts. His name is uh, Sergeant Major Billy Waugh. He's a Billy Green Beret legend in, in, in Vietnam, and he came to the agency. He did 20-some years in the agency. He was in charge of surveilling bad guys in Khartoum. Khartoum, like one of the places that I later served, a radical Muslim country in Africa, Khartoum was a hotel for or all of Sudan. but Primarily, Khartoum was a hotel for terrorists. If you paid a fee, you would be allowed in, given papers. Uh, you could go to the hospital. You, could, you, you would be a regular schmo. Uh, but you were still a terrorist. And, and and Billy is the guy who actually saw Elits Ramirez, uh, a.k.a. the Jackal. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he's the one that first ever photographed him and was able to, uh, you know, make book on him. And we eventually were able to grab him and, and pass him to the, uh, to the French. But anyway, at the time, Billy had Osama bin Laden in, in complete surveillance. The first photograph, uh, unilateral photographs we got of bin Laden was through Billy. And he kept telling us, he said, look, we can get this guy anytime. You you bring a 12-man ODA, Green Beret ODA in there, and this isn't going to be a fair fight. We we won't lose a body, and we will snag his ass out. There's just no doubt about it. But the political will wasn't there, even though uh, we had intelligence showing that bin Laden was creating these camps on the outskirts of Khartoum and other places, and that there was obvious terrorist-type training and guerrilla training going on on these things, plus all the unilateral and liaison reporting we were getting from our allies, we knew that bin Laden was not only a bad guy, but we knew that he was up to something big. And um, later on, of course, we find out that it was the creation of al-Qaeda, which means the base. And and, and the main purpose of al-Qaeda was to diversify from just the, you know, the, the Mujahideen uh, fighting in Afghanistan kind of rebels, and, you know, taking in and supporting the likes of Hezbollah or other other organizations out there. They were, you know, the enemy of the, my enemy is my friend kind of thing. And that was their philosophy. And and for lack of a better word, Bin Laden became kind of like a godfather. He was the guy that could put these families together and support them in different ways and, and get things done against us. So at that time, in 1996, we had the ability and the capability to to uh, to grab uh, bin Laden and bring him to justice uh we failed to do so because we, we never got the green light now imagine what would have happened if we would have, we would have been able to neutralize him at that time you talking the, the bombing of the coal uh most likely would have happened the uh, the bombing of our embassies in africa simultaneously that killed thousands of people uh including dozens of americans um probably would have happened and if I was a betting man, I would say that maybe even the 9-11 might have not happened. Uh, so um, right. it, it, there's a lot to be said for preemptive action and disruptive action. Not, it's not always le- lethal kinetic solutions to things, but you do have to have the ability to disrupt your enemies so they cannot attack you.
3: So at the point that uh, Billy Waugh was you know, taking photos of Bin Laden, uh, the bombings in, in the embassies in Africa hadn't happened yet.
4: No, sir. That that happened later on. We're talking okay. uh, middle of '96, late '96. Uh, he had been in Afghanistan. He had been part of the Mujahideen. He had led some. Uh, he actually had seen combat. Uh, we knew that he was a very well uh, son of a very wealthy family. He was worth even himself was worth fifty million dollars. Which by Saudi money, that's nothing, but he was worth fifty million dollars. And we knew that he was re- recruiting Chechens and other Islamic. From, from different ilk and bringing them together to work together. And, and that's what these training camps were. They were, you know, different flavors of, of the same kind of mentality.
3: So him bringing these different groups of people from different uh, countries together, was this the first instance of this transnational terrorism uh, where there's organization from uh, like-minded individuals in different countries?
4: Well, I think, I, I won't say the beginning, but it was definitely a, a new, more uh, uh, robust uh, epoch, you know, a new, a new phase. Um, I mean, Hezbollah had been, you know, killing, I mean, when, before 9-11, Hezbollah had killed more Americans than any other terrorist group, including um, my, my first karate student, Billy San Pedro, was a Marine in the barracks uh, in, 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 uh, in in Beirut. Beirut. Yeah. Well, he got killed in '83. so, um, so there, there's international terrorism has existed, you know, the, the Red Army Brigade was all over, all over, uh, Europe, uh, by the Meinhof gang, were all over Europe, but I think that this became a new, the Muslim radical team effort to fight Israel and destroy the United States.
3: Okay. Yeah. And, you know, you, you mentioned Billy Wow and, and, I mean, just the stuff he did in Vietnam alone uh, was incredible. And and then he went on to serve, I don't know, 30, 40 years, you know, longer at the agency. And it's just mind-blowing to think about, uh, you know, some of the the things that he's done, uh, you know, that have come to light. Uh, It's really phenomenal. He's a real
4: hero. He's a very unique American hero.
3: Yeah. And, And, you know, hero is not a word. Used lightly, but you know, he definitely fits that, you know,
4: absolutely, absolutely, bar none.
3: Okay, so, so you now you guys have this bin Laden unit, um, and you had the capability to take him out, uh. Was there a particular... Like, were you given a reason why you couldn't? Or it was just, no, you, you know, we can't well, go in and get this... Well,
4: primarily thing. was, yeah, but primarily was, well, we don't have uh, enough proof that he's out, out to do something. Mm. Uh, that, you know, obviously, let's face it, I mean, it, it, is a, it, it is a major political statement when you send a special team into a, a foreign country, no matter how filthy and, and corrupt and, and full of terrorists it is, it's still an international incident. But... Again, you know, it, it, you know, terrorism is not Queensberry rules. Uh, we cannot be fighting them uh, in 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 those terms of you know, hey, everything you got right and left parameters. You know, you have to be able to be proactive, and this is why I call for that. That's always been my my posture all the time in the agency was, you have to hit first. You have to be able to preempt something from happening or at least disrupt it. So you can get away or or, or you could neutralize it and uh, that that was the case in all of this with with bin laden um of course we all have you know very very sharp 2020 hindsight but we knew at the time that bin laden was 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 evil we knew that he was up to big things uh but we just could not in the administration wasn't buying it They, they did not want to take the risk even though khartoum was a pariah country so who who are you going to upset except you
3: know the, the Sudanese right and then in, in those days you know i would imagine there wasn't like now you know if a if a guy who's wanted is spotted somewhere by you know uh, covert american operators you know they'll probably go after him um but you know in those days pre-9/11 that was a a, a completely different thing um so then well you know have
4: our, our ability to do that even on this uh, to this day is something that that's a chagrin to me because we are very good about taking people out in what we would call war zones mm-hmm. afghanistan iraq syria the drone blah 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 but you know these people operate in in third second and first world countries the, the support mechanisms to these guys and and that's what we need to keep tabs on and, and neutralize what needed um whether it's by like uh, you know kidnapping them or compromising them to the local cops or whatever else is legal at the time for us to do by by the president's orders, um, that that's imperative that we move closer to that. We we are very good at, at you know putting a drone uh, in the air, and they've they've gotten so good now that they they can literally shoot uh, a, a, a car that's moving. Uh, there's a piece in the book that I'm sure you read where I actually you know uh, gave the order to pull the trigger on one of those. And the, the, the back then, the, the uh, targets had to be stationary. We did not have the capability to hit a moving target. So we, are, we as a country, as a military, we're very adept at that. But I think where we lack, um, not the willpower, uh, I'm sorry, not the warriors, uh, the leadership, what they lack is the conviction of really uh, protecting folks by, by being able to disrupt and take down things before they bite us.
3: So Bin Laden, uh, you know, you guys knew where he was. Um, He then went on, uh, formed Al-Qaeda, conducted a series of attacks against uh, American embassies uh, in Africa and uh, attacked the USS Cole, which I think was in Yemen, was uh, in the waters of Yemen. Um, And then was it during this period where he went to Afghanistan?
4: He he actually went to Afghanistan before initiating these attacks. Okay, he was in Afghanistan when when the coal blew and when the uh, our, our embassies uh, were hit in Africa. Yeah, he was already. in. in uh, we missed that opportunity. I think he left '97, no no later than '98. I, I was out of the the, uh, the task force by then because you know I, I had to uh, to rotate out. But um, yeah.
3: yeah, he was already in Afghanistan with, that, with, that, with those. Major uh, events happen. Okay, so then, um, so then you rotated out, and now at this point you are a, a senior guy. Uh, what was your next job?
4: Well, I, I made senior rank. I, I, I did where, which our flag rank for for the agency SIS uh, was when I uh, when I was awarded uh, deputy chief of East Asia division for Korea. So I was the agency's rep the national security council for anything to do with the koreas north and south Mm. and uh and i ran my shop was you know the the, the korean operations and i I had served there before so i knew a lot of the players and um that was a very rewarding job for me uh it was probably my most conventional uh kind of job uh as, as a senior manager um, but even then I, uh, there's, there's a couple of stories in the book where I actually go out, I'm the guy that goes out and takes down a, a North Korean agent that was infiltrating people into the United States. So, um, but yeah, I did that for two years, uh, 98 through 2000. And then, um, for Black had just taken over, uh, our, our counterterrorist center and he, uh, he has, uh. He asked me to come uh, and, and come back to CTC, come back to the center. And I did.
3: And then, so you were the, were you the, the um, deputy chief of station in Korea when you left?
4: No, I, well, I was the deputy. This is, this is at headquarters. This is not overseas. So it's not a deputy. Okay, chief.
3: I'll I got you. Yeah, okay.
4: This is the division. The division chief was a friend of mine and he had, three deputies uh, one was his main deputy the other two deputies one was one for for uh, China and one for Korea's and I was the, the uh, East Asian Division deputy chair uh, the deputy chief for the Koreas and okay. I was the agency's rep to the NSC so I were, all these hard target board meetings and stuff like that I was the uh, our rep on that
3: okay yeah I recently well not very recently but uh, I don't know maybe 6 or 7 months ago I interviewed a guy who was in the uh, North Korean infantry, and he defected. Um, Oh, yeah. And it was, I mean, just speaking to him about, you know, the living conditions. And, uh, you know, I think he said he estimated like 70 or 80 percent of the North Korean army was malnourished, which is really just mind-blowing to think about.
4: Yeah, a lot of people don't realize that, and we're witnessing a little bit of that now with the uh, with the Ukrainian uh, issues that, uh, you know, we've always said for every hour that a North Korean flies a jet in combat training, our pilots do 100. Uh, and, and same thing with our special operations guys shooting or diving or, you know, or jumping or whatever. Um, let's face it, there's no more capable... Military in the world than ours, and we have 21 years unfortunately of combat. So,
3: right, right. So, uh, let me ask, uh, where were you on uh September 11,
4: 2001? I was then chief of operations at the Qatar Terrorist Center. I had taken over uh in May of 2000 after a, uh, a tour as chief of station at a very radical um. A Muslim country in in Africa, a Muslim run country in Africa, and um, the uh, I was standing outside my boss's office waiting for for him to come back for a meeting, and and uh, that's when the first plane hit, uh, and we all know where we were at the time.
3: Yeah, and did you got did you know right away that it was uh, like I I think a lot of people thought after the second plane hit. Okay, this is some kind of you know, coordinated attack. Um, did you guys feel like it was an attack after the first plane hit, or or was it like
4: no? Most actually, people? and I was literally uh, looking at the TV, talking to one of the secretaries, conference secretary, when uh, when the first plane hit. And as, as you've probably read several times, a lot of people thought it was a smaller plane. I thought it was like a twin yeah. engine Cessna. Something um, we had in uh, the, the counterterrorist center had a lot of innovative things uh, created. And one of them was we had representatives from every single federal agency in, in the United States. So we had, you know, ATF guys, we had DEA guys, we have uh, d- diplomatic security guys, but we had an FAA guy. And the FAA guy uh, came to me uh, and said, "Mr. Oh, we have a problem. I said, you mean the plane that, uh, that he says, well, sir, more than that. We have uh, four aircraft that had activated their emergency signal, and none of them were responding. And right about that time, um, plane hits the, the the second plane hits the building.
3: Wow! So right there, you are, you know this is an, a coordinated effort,
4: without a doubt. There was you know there was, and, and it was more obvious too. You could see that it was a bigger aircraft. Uh, people were already filming the area, so they got a better coverage of the initial uh, footage that we got on the first plane. And, um, yeah, immediately. Uh, immediately we knew that this was something of, of a different magnitude. Uh, and, of course, when the FAA guy told me there's two more planes out there, uh, they're going to hit something. And, of course, one was the Pentagon. Rumors are is that the, the, uh, the fourth one was uh, for the agency. That's the one that uh, those brave young folks uh, – Died of making sure that it you know blew up in a, in an empty field rather than in in a government building.
3: Yeah, in uh, Pennsylvania. Yeah. Yep.
4: Yeah. Yep.
3: So one of the uh, <clears throat> uh, you know there were several books and and reviews and uh, people trying to figure out you know what failed that led to us not catching um, you know the the 11 attacks you know before they happened and. Uh, I think one of the primary uh, issues was uh, people not sharing intel within the government, uh, and that sort of thing. Did you did you notice a change after nine eleven as as far as uh, you know the political willpower to take action, and then also the sharing of information amongst the different security services?
4: Two, two very different questions, and I'll let me let me answer the first one. Um, I'm not going to say that we had the, the best communication uh, between our agencies because we all have different objectives, okay? Between the FBI mm-hmm. and ourselves and the, the others. But you got to realize that at, at that time, throughout CTC, the, the the history of CTC after mid 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 uh, mid 90s, um, you had the chief. Our chief was Gopher uh, Black. They had a senior DI that was his main deputy, Ben Bunk. Then we had Rick Prado, chief of operations, and Ed, an FBI friend who was there. I mean, we always had in our in CTC front offices, the mid-90s, we had a senior SIS, SES level for the FEDs uh, officer in, um, in, in in our headquarters, in, in, literally in the in front office of the counterterrorist center. So for people to say that we weren't sharing, it's an exaggeration. Were we mm. sharing enough, or, or uh, sorry, I don't know what that is. It's one of
3: these emergency, uh,
4: hopefully you can edit that out.
3: <laughs> yeah, no problem, that's not a big deal.
4: Yeah, I know, mm-hmm. I'm just giving it time to, there we go, it's, it's part of one of these uh, Amber Alerts. Um, yeah. Yeah, but you know, the, uh, the so it's an exaggeration, um, because it's politically, but to divide things, you know how that is. But right, okay. um, I, after nine eleven, absolutely, you know, there there was a lot of improvements. Uh, the first improvement was that politically, um, the testosterone and the calcium in the spine uh, went through the roof, and everybody started saying, "We got to do something about this." Uh, and to, to to many of us who've been trying to do something about this, um, um, was 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 kind of like you know a, a little bit insulting, but you know. The, the, the people that, that say that we missed uh, 9-11, they're technically correct. But what people don't, don't realize is that no organization, I don't, not even the Israelis who have a very smaller uh, you know, theater of, of issues, um, know everything that's going in, 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 in a particular organization. Right. You know, everybody thinks that you know, the, the intelligence is a puzzle. That you get all these pieces, and you're looking at the little picture, and eventually you have the cats and the dogs and whatever it is, and you know what's going on. Yeah, it's a puzzle, but a lot of the pieces are missing, and you've got nothing to go by uh, except whatever intelligence you have on modus operandi and stuff. So we knew for a fact, we knew for a fact that that uh, there was something brewing, and that we thought that it was al Qaeda because of all the traffic that was going on we we, we put bad guys under surveillance overseas, we're watching people. And lo and behold, towards the uh, later, just before 9-11, one of the things that happened was that people that we were surveilling disappeared, communications started drying up. So here you had this high, you know, this high of, of communications and, and activity, and all of a sudden, it stopped. We knew, we knew that something was coming. We just did not know what. Yeah. Um, the uh, the fact that the, these three guys had trained, uh, the, the guys who you know, flew the planes, the poor guys, that flew the plane, the planes um, had trained in the United States. We you know we did not know that. Um, it, it, it did fall through the cracks somewhere. Um, but that's not our operations. We don't we don't do customs immigration or or uh, you know anything in the United States proper. We can only we're legally bound not to operate in the United States. So we everything we do is overseas. Not an excuse because we're part of you know you know counterterrorism and, and everything else is it is a team sport. But uh, I think that the, a lot of the communications issues were, were uh, made better and, and definitely the, the, uh, the fortitude of going out and after these individuals. And we proved that in Afghanistan, as, as uh, most people know, that the first boots in Afghanistan um, was the CIA, not the Army, right. not the Navy, not the Air Force. It was CIA. It was my guys from a Special Activities Division and the Counterterrorist Center. Um, that vectored in the first green Beret team that came in there, so yeah,
3: and uh, you know, just to t- sort of add on to your point, and it's like what you know what you mentioned earlier, like you guys could have taken out bin Laden a couple of years prior to that, um, uh, but the political will wasn't there to do it um and and you know uh referencing back to the recent uh, shooting here in New York on this on the subway um, you know I, I think they did officially declared it terrorism and uh you know, I, f- I forget the names of these people but they have pretty decent platforms on Twitter and, and things like that and, and they were saying oh, stuff out. like yeah. and they were saying stuff like oh you know the you know why do we why are we paying the NYPD all this money and and it's in particular, the, the counterterrorism unit of the NYPD, um, you know, what good are they if they can't catch these guys before this happens? And it's like, well, they, they can't prevent every single attack that is perpetrated, you know, um, but well, it, you it's... Know,
4: the biggest, the biggest uh, difference in, in what you're describing, and obviously that was a, a terrorist act, because the guy was had very much advertised his anger and everything else. But it is very, very difficult to follow loan operators. Mm -hmm. You know, if you're part of an organization, you have to have communications. You have to have dealings. We have support mechanisms that could be compromised. You know, uh, satellite coverage. But looking for the average American who, uh, not the average American, but an American uh, in this country that would be willing and able to do something as, as terroristic as what this guy did that's almost impossible for forget the intelligence agencies or the federal agency, but even local law enforcement, um, you know, we, we, we have such a balance in our country because we are blessed with freedom of speech. We have a constitution that allows us certain things that most countries don't have. And many people in our own country take for granted. Uh, but part of it, we cannot accuse somebody without proof. So yeah, you know, this guy may be ranting and raving and, and talking about, you know, about how much he hates the country or whatever the hell he was. I don't remember. Um, but that doesn't mean that, that you could go and arrest him and uh, waterboard him and, and find out what he's up to. Right. You may be able right. to fight, if you find out, you put him under surveillance or something like that. But again, you're, you're talking literally needle in a haystack kind of stuff.
3: So after 9 uh, after 11, you know, the quote-unquote, you know, the gloves came off. Did you see that and feel that, uh, you know, as you were working?
4: Oh, without a doubt. I mean, you know, the, uh, the, the combination, uh we, we started, well, let's face it, you know, we, we won the war in Afghanistan pretty quick. Um, as soon as the military was able to kick in and, and uh, uh, but we were there on the ground uh, working with the Northern Alliance. Uh, you know, uh, lacing targets for our for jets were bombing. So in a very, um, excuse <clears> me, <throat> in a military uh, uh, posture, um, we were definitely taking it to the Taliban and Al-Qaeda who, who were ruling uh, Afghanistan at the time, you know, so.
3: So now at this point, um, how long were you at the CIA?
4: Oh, I was probably in my nineteenth uh, year. Um, well, actually, twentieth. I, I, yeah, I did. I did uh, twenty-four years. So, um, uh, when I was chief of ops, I, I had probably been in the agency about twenty-one years, and I got promoted to senior rank in ninety-eight. So and, you know, now you're talking two thousand and one. So I was in grade for three years when that happened. But what, what, what? For me personally, what happened too was I didn't want to be at headquarters. You know, I. Um, I figured that if I was going to be fighting uh, my last few years, I wanted to be back on the street. And it's also described in the book, a program that I put together. Uh, I alluded to this uh, earlier on, which was my uh, my interest in being having the capabilities in place where we could actually disrupt a terrorist attack, rather than waiting to retaliate because of a, a terrorist attack. And when you retaliate, that means you've already been you, you've already lost, you know, brethren. So you can't do that. Um, so that's what I went and did for the last three years. I spent them on the the streets of uh, the world, um, trying to chase bad guys. And when uh, I saw that I wasn't going anywhere, and I was getting a little long in the tooth, I said this time to retire. So I retired, in, the, uh, in around, like I said, 24 years of service.
3: And what was that like for you? Um, you know, retiring and and uh, no longer operating and. In- you know, going after bad guys?
4: Well, I can't say that I did that because I actually went to work for Blackwater as their their chief of... Uh, I was one of their vice presidents for special gotcha. uh, government support. So uh, I was pretty much uh, helping the community with my expertise and my, my mm, international okay. networks. Uh, but all, all everything that I was doing at Blackwater was sponsored by and on behalf of the U.S. community uh, writ large. So um, I did that for almost eight years. Uh, then I really went off of operations and, and became more into teaching. I taught at Fort Bragg for for seven years, on and off there, uh, eight times a year. Um, a special program for our, our special operations forces that that I was teaching, helping teach. Um, and the book is my last firefight, and this is uh this is my last attempt to pay back this country for all that I have, me and mine have enjoyed. Um, I would be remiss if I, if I just say that all three of my kids are in service. My, uh, our daughter is a, uh, was a school principal and she runs two charter schools. And one of my, my sons is a, uh, is a major in the, in the army, um, combat nice. vet, you know, uh, and the young one did six years, uh, in the air force and is now getting his doctorates and is going back into the military, uh, to, uh, to help a wounded warrior. So, uh, so it's time for, for them to take over the baton and I'm just going to ride my horse and my motorcycle.
3: That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. And and the, the book is fantastic. Um, you know, uh, me personally having a, 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 a relations, you know, family members of mine are Cuban. And so immediately from the beginning, I was captivated by that. Um, and you know, just going through the first couple of chapters, I'm like, Oh, I'm going to enjoy this podcast. Um, uh, so yeah, it's oh, a f- phenomenal book. Um, I recommend the audience check it out. Um, it's, it's available everywhere, right?
4: Yeah, it's available everywhere. on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, anybody to sell airports. Um, and, and by the way, it, it made, uh, number seven in the New York times, bestseller list, 10 days out of the shoot. So, uh, it's been well-received, and uh, we're very proud. I'm very proud of the fact that I'm getting the word out. The The, the goal of the book was to show the, the, the American public what the agency really does uh, and what the ethos of my colleagues is. This is not, where you know, the Jason Bourne, American-made, all these Hollywood uh, extravaganzas when it comes to espionage are so fake. I mean, I enjoy James Bond movies, but... I enjoy them because I know they're fake, you know, Uh, the action is great. The women are good looking, the guys are handsome. They drive cool cars. (laughs) Uh, I'm still waiting for my Austin Martin, you know? So, uh, you know, we, um, the goal of the book was that to put a realistic light for the average American to read and say, Oh, so this is what my agency does. Uh, and I'm very proud of that. And, uh, every feedback that I have gotten from my colleagues, uh, who understand that the business better than most are, have come back and told us, thank you, man. And you know, we really appreciate you going out there and, and, uh, showing the people what, what we really do and how we really do it. So.
3: Yeah. And, and just to add on to that, um, a, a lot of the folks that, you know, I've done podcasts with people who are at the CIA at uh, different levels, um, uh, in terms of seniority and, and how long they were there. But, uh, People like that, people I've uh, worked with and, you know, producing content on the internet, uh, articles and interviews and stuff like that uh, with some senior senior agency guys. And, and all these people are fantastic uh, human beings who, you know, dedicated their life to serving and, um, you know, they're patriotic people. Uh, but I, I feel, you know, as you probably know and, and feel more than I do, that, in a lot of instances, the CIA gets a bad rap uh, in the media, or, you know, whatever. But without without a
4: doubt, without a doubt, you know, John. The, yeah. the, the, uh, the one of the things that that really uh, highlights this, you know, this CIA is a small a small organization, it's much smaller than the FBI, and our operational component is tiny. We're not Army, mm-hmm. Navy, or Marines. Uh, we have 137 stars in our Wall of Honor, right? And almost a third of that is post nine eleven, and that was part of the impetus for me because some of those folks i knew personally had worked with me uh personally and i was adamant that their family needed to have something more than hollywood to show their grandchildren hey this is what grandpa did during the war
3: right yeah it's 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 um it's it's great work and you know a, a large share of the sacrifice is taken on by such a small group of americans you know um
4: yeah. you but, know even in the military as you know only 1 mm-hmm. 1% a little over 1% of the population serves at any given time so um yeah yeah
3: yeah and then the within that small percentage it's an even smaller percent of those who serve in combat and it's usually you know, multiple rotations. So it's like uh, again, very small community of people taking on the the majority of the burden. Um, yep, yep. So one
4: percent of the one percent.
3: Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, so yeah. So like I said, you know, it was it was fantastic to uh, to s- sit here and chat with you. The book is phenomenal. You know, I recommend the audience pick it up. Um, you know, it was an honor to talk to you, and uh, I want to thank you for your service as well.
4: Thank you very much. And thank you for having me on and helping me, uh, you know, uh, keep, keep the good news going.
3: Oh, if anyone, if anyone in the audience wants to sort of keep up with you online or whatever, where can they do that?
4: Well, I, I have a, a, uh, my website is, uh, Rick Prado, R I C, no K R I C Prado.com. Um, that, that's where, you know, I my bios are and some of my ongoing things are, are on there. But, uh, so yeah, that's that's our website, and and there's links there for people to once they read about me and some of these things that we just discussed, um, where they can actually click and it, it takes you to the choices of Amazon, Warwick's, uh, Barnes and Noble, and all these uh, entities out there that they can uh, uh, purchase the book.
3: Yeah, and for me, like I have a hard copy of the book, but I I listen to it through audio book, uh, audio format, and it's also great, and I think. You had a small bit in the beginning, which is which is pretty fascinating as well. Um, so it's also great to listen to for anybody interested. Yeah,
4: actually, it's funny because I, I also have, obviously, I have the, the hard copies, but I, I actually purchased the audio because um, I wanted to see what I sounded like. It's the first time I ever do this kind of stuff. and yeah. But the, the, the greater majority, I, I only do like five pages at the beginning, which is the, 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 the acknowledgments and that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. But uh, the guy who does the actual reading uh, is is one of the best uh, at the business. You know, uh, you know it's, it's, it's Scott Brick is his name, and, and uh, a lot of my friends who are avid, like myself, uh, audiophiles for books, um, they we all know who he was. So that's that's why we brought him on. And the guy's just—he really does know how to convey a story. He's fabulous.
3: Consume audio books uh even if it's a compelling story if the the narrator isn't good i just can't i can't do it um but I, this I guy is, is good that was, that yeah. was it. Yeah. yeah yeah
4: yeah yeah so but thank you very much for having me on and and, um, and and spreading the good word and uh you know we all served in, in in different ways and you're 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 serving i mean this is uh when you're you know promoting the kind of things that you're promoting and working with the people that you're working uh, that's 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 part of service. So thank you very much.
3: No, thank you.